You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hey, Pharmacy Podcast Nation, you got to listen in every Tuesday to stay up to date on the most recent medication therapy topics. Game Changers creates awareness about pharmacotherapy and clinical practice changes that can significantly impact pharmacy practice. Every Tuesday, a new episode of Game Changers is published on the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. And always remember, the pharmacist is the hub of healthcare. Today, we live at a unique point in human history where data is becoming the new currency. Beyond oil, dollars, and social status, data is emerging as one of the most powerful and consequential currencies around the globe. Technology, computer processing, cloud storage, and artificial intelligence are empowering these data to transform zeros and ones into insightful and even profound realizations about almost every aspect of our lives. I'm John Nosta. And this is FutureDose.Tech. Technology, pharmacy, and better healthcare delivery. By creating more efficient, higher quality concierge-like pharmacist services, we can transform from the pharmacist of yesterday into the future provider of pharmacy tomorrow. FutureDose.Tech is a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, Pharmacy Podcast Network listeners. My name is Dave Berkowitz, and... Today on the Future Dose Tech podcast, I have uh, Alan Flynn. Alan Flynn is assistant professor of learning health system at University of Michigan. And we connected last year based on our, our mutual interest in automating more aspects of pharmacy. And, and my mission in general in pharmacy is to get pharmacists closer to patients. And as a, as a former pharmacy administrator, I, I just always needed more pharmacists to do medication reconciliation. I needed more pharmacists at the bedside. I needed more pharmacists holding the hand of a patient when they're going through a difficult time. So that's like, in a nutshell, my mission is is to get pharmacists closer to patients. I didn't really need pharmacists to check pills. Of course, they had to check pills and distribute meds like from a regulatory perspective. But but, um, in my opinion, you know, that stuff can probably be done more accurately by machines at this point. So so what I want to talk about today is sort of how we're going to get there. And I'm not the type of person, as you'll learn through through my other podcast probably, uh, I'm not the type of person who's uh, say, oh, we need AI in pharmacy. I'm a very like detail-oriented person. I like to talk about how we're going to get there. What are the technical aspects? What are the steps we need to do to get there? And what are the people who is who is really paving the way in our profession is is Alan, and you know I'm excited to have you. So 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 thank you for for being here today. Um, can you just give me a cliff notes on your background really fast? Sure, Dave. I'd be happy to do that, and I'm delighted to be here with you. Thanks for making this opportunity available. Um, yeah. So my background really fast. Cliff notes version. Um, PharmD from the University of Michigan, 1993. I've worked in IT. I've worked as a hospital pharmacist generalist um, at uh, St. Joseph Mercy Health System in Trinity Health. Um, found my way into pharmacy informatics. 
um, had a job as a manager of an electronic health records uh, group at the University of Michigan for a while. And then in 2012, I made a, uh, a crazy decision to do a mid-career PhD in information science. Um, and so to fast forward and finish the Cliff Notes version, I graduated uh, with my PhD in information science in 2018, joined the faculty of the University of Michigan Medical School in the Department of Learning Health Sciences. And uh, so that's where you find me today. That was so inspiring. Like just to go back and have that career pivot, really cool. Um, so so can you, can you give us a definition? You, know, you work in the Learning Health Sciences division. What, what is a learning health system? Yeah, so a quick definition, uh, in my mind, a learning health system is one where we, we collect data from actual real world practice, so real world data, and we analyze those data in appropriate ways to generate real world evidence. Um, so, uh, of course, today, oftentimes there are problems with the data, there are challenges with the analyses, but uh, places have shown, you know, that this can be done and it can be done with some medication learning. If we can do that and then we're still not done, whatever we learn from that process, if we can turn around and uh, rapidly distribute it back uh, to all of the places in the, in the system where it's needed, to all the pharmacies and pharmacists who need that new knowledge arising from real world data and real world evidence, um, some point in practice and deliver it to them, then we would finally close the loop and I would say achieve a kind of a learning health system cycle. And so learning health systems are systems that behave that way. <laughs> Um, and uh, I work with groups that are trying to set up and demonstrate uh, more possibilities for these systems all the time. Um, there are a lot of challenges, as you can imagine, mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of pitfalls, as you can imagine. Uh, but that's, in a nutshell, what I think about when I think about learning health systems. Semi-related to that, one of my favorite, you've written a lot of articles that I'm a big fan of, but one of my favorites is probably one that may have gone under the radar a little bit. It was just a commentary in AJHP about this concept of NUPAR, mm -hmm. which for my listeners out there have never heard that acronym before. It stands for Near Universal Prospective Order Review. Can you find that for my audience and, and why you think it's important uh, and why you think it's important, why we need to improve medication order review? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, AJHP does a lot of good things. One of the things that they do is they survey pharmacists about how they spend their time in practice. And so one of the more recent surveys uh, indicates, you know, that pharmacists may spend in the aggregate, you know, 40% of our time um, doing prescription or, you know, or order review. Um, I practice in the hospital. There's an analogous uh, practice also in community pharmacies, of course. And so, um, you know, this, what, what I was writing about then, um, and it's still an issue today, as you've said, is that uh, as we go electronic, and now it's the case where, you know, the vast majority of prescriptions are electronic prescriptions, and there are a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we're, we haven't really studied and we haven't really changed the process of prescription order review that much, even though the technology has changed a lot. So before we had e-prescriptions, of course, the pharmacists, one of the things pharmacists were famous for and had, had deep skills was reading human, other human <laughs> beings' writing. Right. And I'm still good at that. <laughs> you know, and interpreting what that thing must mean uh, because, you know, Dr. So-and-so always dots, you know, her eyes in that way. And that's what that, you know, we knew that stuff. 
um, in those days. Uh, but those days are past. And so now so much of e-prescribing is constrained and controlled in certain ways that are hard to perceive, but it is in our widely various e-prescribing and EHR implementations. Um, and, but the, the legibility problem has essentially gone away for the most part. Um, and so now, what are we left with as we stand there and we do that role? A lot of highly structured, readable uh, prescriptions and cues, um, some of which um, are problematic and we need to find those and intervene on them. Others are uh, highly systematized and essentially pre-vetted mm -hmm. by expert groups who've decided that is an appropriate prescription and they just use it again and again and again. And, and yet we look at every one as a one-off, you know, and we spend a lot of time doing that. So um, when I wrote that article, I raised the question about studying how we could do better. If you really read carefully where that article ends, it ends with saying, you know, there may be some potential here to bring technology to bear and do better, and we should study that. Um, yeah, the key, still yeah, today, your key aspect working on too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the key like takeaway for me was was just the opportunity cost, and that gets back to my original point about having pharmacists get closer to the patients. Is right. I didn't need my pharmacist to verify hundreds of DocuState orders a day, which, as you mentioned, are highly controlled, and uh, and the data within the EHR, it's you know it's it's essentially like you said pre vetted, so mm -hmm. it's it's just not of high value for my skilled labor to be. Right. Well, I would argue that a lot of it isn't valuable at all. It's actually of zero value. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yet some of it is valuable. And so how do you sort out what is and what isn't? And that's a really hard question. So the, this, nearly, the nearly universal part is the fact that we haven't sorted that out yet, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, 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 it hasn't been sorted out yet. We haven't figured out how to have a machine tell us which prescriptions we really should pay attention to and look at carefully and make sure everything is appropriate and wanted there versus the ones that, you know, actually don't need to be further checked. And how are we going to do that? Yeah, to, to add a finer point, so so. So essentially what we sort of need to do is at least, at least, you know, there's a lot of things we need to do, but two of the main things we need to figure out and solve for is identifying what orders, um, what orders are risky, right? Mm -hmm. And also what, what, what orders are, are unusual perhaps. So, mm -hmm. so that's a good segue into uh, my next topic, which is some, some of my other favorite papers of, that you wrote. One is based, one is, uh, based off of a uh, product, I guess I would call it, or a solution called Script Numerate, and the other is a medication risk scale, or as you alluded, called it in the paper, perceived medication worrisome scale, which is called uh, CrowdStart. So, so starting with Script Numerate, can you explain how Script Numerate works and and like what it's what it's designed to solve for? Yeah, absolutely. So um, before there was this uh, paper that you mentioned on script numerate, we did some work um, uh, with the pharmacy IT group here at the University of Michigan, and we, we were exploring new types of decision support. We wanted to alert people to strange new prescriptions or orders, um, things that are odd, things that are unusual, maybe even prescriptions that have never been seen or never arrived at the pharmacy before. 
And in the electronic world, we realize that, you know, in all of our EHR databases or e-prescribing or pharmacy information management system databases, we now have growing lists, historical records of prescribing patterns. Those data are just sitting there. They're kind of latent. We're not doing a lot with them yet, but they're there. And so we picked up a whole year's worth of uh, data about prescribing for several high-risk drugs and uh, basically uh, built very simple models of, this is in adults only, very simple models of what was typical and atypical for prescribing for those drugs. So we could tell with the computer for any new prescription, we would compare it to our model and it would say, we, it was basically buckets of things and it would say, okay, this is in the bucket of things that we see all the time, or no, this is in the bucket of things that we rarely see. Or this is this prescription, we've looked back a whole year in our records, and for this drug with this dosage form, for this uh, place, a location in the hospital, we've actually never seen a prescription like this before. I submit to you that I really think that pharmacists, one of the things we're doing when we're doing order review is we're looking for things that are strange or unusual. And so the big point here is that actually we could we demonstrated you can program the computer actually to give pharmacists a lot of help finding the things that are strange and unusual. Um, and so our first move, you know, resulted in some early decision support and we and we showed that about 40% of the time in a, in a small scale study at one place, but nevertheless 40% of the time uh, prescribers who got an alert that said your prescription is is very unusual. <laughs> they changed the, uh, the order. Um, and if you think about our typical alerting and decision support, a 40% response rate is much higher than we're used to. No, for sure. Um, and so uh, they didn't change things 100% of the time, but they changed things often enough to get our attention. So we published on that. Um, Allie Woods is the lead author on that um, and a group here. Um, it took uh, two years and two of our pharmacy resident projects were focused on getting that job done. Once we had demonstrated that and sort of figured out the methods in that early paper, um, then I started thinking about what I often am thinking about these days, which is how do you scale that up? Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Instead of doing that for five drugs, how would we do that essentially for every drug product in the formulary that people can, can prescribe? And the script numerate paper that you're talking about essentially demonstrated a technical, a set of technical moves or methods that could potentially enable that routine scale up of this kind of detection of atypical or strange or never before seen prescriptions across a whole wide array, literally hundreds of different drug products in our EHR database um, of, of past prescriptions today. So the script numerate thing was really a scale up story. And so we showed that, yep, you could scale that up and there are, again, the analytic here is pretty simple. You're just looking for what's common and what's unusual or never before seen. It's, it's, it's not that mysterious at all. It's a very, one person I talked to called it a kind of um, the, the world's most basic machine learning. <laughs> I mean, it's very simple, um, but that doesn't mean it's bad or, un, or not useful. It's just simple, and, uh, and what it does is it just compares every new prescription to what you've seen before in your institution. Uh, of course, you know, to finish that point, we, we showed that you could scale it up even beyond that. So if you wanted to know, for example, about 
what's a typical way that a medication is used in a region like southeastern Michigan or in a state or in a larger multi-state region or in a country, you could do these analyses at multiple levels. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately there's a pretty interesting set of moves here for the pharmacy profession to think about how we would do that on a large scale. So, yeah, fair point about being simple in terms of the algorithm itself, right? But, but what I love about it is like the interoperability possibilities, and and the 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 endpoint of being an API, right? So, can you right. one of the one of the because that enables all kinds of improvements on the algorithm because you have the pipe, right? You right. have the ability, and then you could tweak things and get more complicated here or there, establish more, but it's the ability to talk through the chain that's that's really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And the the paper mentions a bunch of times, like a, it's the, this concept called a compound digital object. Mm-hmm. Would you be able to, to comment on, like sort of explain what object-oriented programming is or like what how you accomplished this ability to be able to communicate between systems? Yeah, so, right, so so interoperability, obviously, is, is a term in the informatics world that's getting a lot of play these days. A lot of folks are interested in it in a variety of perspectives, and that's, I think, what you're driving at there. So, mm-hmm. so interoperability, the first thing is, from my perspective, interoperability is a matter of degrees. It's not something that a system has or doesn't have. It's something that you, we're going to need to understand in degrees of low interoperability, moderate, higher levels, and so on. And of course, we want to move toward higher levels of interoperability with the systems of the future. So you mentioned APIs, and the strategy that uh, my team has been pursuing is uh, an API-based uh, technology strategy because we think that one of the major moves that will improve interoperability is to uh, to come to the table, to come um, to the world with easy to understand, easy to integrate APIs and, and, and put some complex code, um, externalize it and modularize it and put it behind the APIs and manage it effectively um, so that the folks that are using it you know, in whichever applications can trust it, but don't have to worry about all of the details. Mm-hmm. And APIs, APIs are in other industries are being widely used to do very powerful things. Um, uh, and so it makes sense, I think, to think about in pharmacy, in the systems of the future, how are we going to take advantage of this kind of API technology? So you also mentioned the compound digital object which is a concept that's really coming from actually the, um, the early days, uh, believe it or not, the early days of the internet. If you go back in history, um, there, was, uh, there, there has always been an internet thinking or uh, you know, large network thinking, let's say, there's been this idea that besides servers that serve up uh, you know, HTML files, index.js files, the things that drive our modern web pages and web apps today. There was also the idea that alongside those things, there should be some uh, highly structured, standardized um, digital objects with multiple parts and pieces, um, you know, that, that people would be able to access over the web and, and do things with. 
And these ideas, um, you know, started in a variety of places in the in the 80s and 90s. People in the, in the information science world started to write about these things. There's a famous paper, I think it's from 2006, by two um, authors, Kahn and Walensky, that brought more attention to this idea of using networks to share compound digital objects. And so what our group has done, we've picked up on that thread, and we've said, well, what if we could take an algorithm, like an algorithm that could be useful in pharmacy, like a risk scoring algorithm, or an algorithm that would score the complexity of someone's medication regimen? What if we could take that, um, instantiate it in software code, create, you know, put the algorithm into code, package that code in a digital package, which ultimately becomes a zip file that, you know, people are used to, um, but also include a bunch of other files with it, uh, with the algorithm. And one of those bunch of other files, one file in the bunch would, would describe an API. It would be an API service description. And if we could do that, if we could combine the algorithm with the service description in the API and provide some other technology along with it, you know, then we thought, well, now we can start to get to algorithms that move more fluidly through the world. So the future state we're going for is that, Dave, in the future, I should be able to send you a zip file with an important pharmacy algorithm in it, which you can then take, um, run through some tests on your end, confirm that it's what you want, and then load it into a system and upgrade your system thereby. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you should be able to send me a cool algorithm that you and your teams have developed, and I should be able to open your email, run some tests against it, demonstrate that it's what I'm looking for. If it is, put it into a system and improve the way that system functions on this end. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so to demystify the compound digital object, it's just a bunch of files that have been very carefully specified and put together in a very particular way to do that kind of task and to allow for that kind of algorithm sharing. Uh, we're going to get more in the weeds with algorithms in a sec, but before we get there, I want to ask you, so you have a path towards identifying unique orders. Now, what about risk? Yeah. So, so can you talk for a second about CrowdSort and, and what that tool solves for? Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so this is, this is uh, something I think that all pharmacists will, you know, immediately also relate to. So I, my belief is that, and we've now tested this, and I think we've demonstrated it to some degree. My belief is that pharmacists, through our training and practice, what we end up with in our minds is we, uh, a kind of um, dimension of risk that we, can, that we understand and express as pharmacists understanding of the broad you know, armamentarium, it used to be called when I was in pharmacy school, all of the drugs that are on the market, you know. And so if I go up to a pharmacist and I, I ask that person, you know, if I just say the name of a drug um, and ask them, you know, on a scale of one to five, you know, how, how, how risky is that drug? Or if I say the name of a drug in a route, you know, um, you know, or if I, and I give them two. So if I say aspirin taken orally or heparin given IV, you know, most pharmacists are immediately going to say, okay, I'm more concerned about the IV heparin than I am about the oral aspirin. And so, and, and on and on it goes. And so we have these, we have these models in our minds from practice, I believe, um, that are intuitive to us, part of our clinical intuition, um, that are in our minds. And we can explore those models and draw them out of pharmacists potentially in systematic ways using 
using a variety of scientific methods. Um, why would we want to do that? I mean, you would think that if we had a world where, you know, medication error data was routinely collected and the data were pristine and we could trust them, we should know where the risks are empirically from data in the field. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't need to interrogate pharmacists to, to generate a, a risk model. But of course, the, that's a, there's a serious breakdown in data there. And I had been puzzling about that serious breakdown in data for a long time because the reports that we get about errors are spotty, um, you know, and, and hard to combine and hard to systematize and hard to learn from. And a learning health system where we started the conversation needs just the opposite of that. It needs something that's reliable and complete um, before you can even learn something from it. So, so, that, so without enough data coming from the real world practice for a whole variety of reasons, um, you know, a lot of near misses, you know, we never hear about them, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, I was asking, you know, okay, well, where, where else are we gonna find that information? And actually it lives in the brains of pharmacists, I believe. <laughs> And so we, so that crowdsourced thing that you're talking about, what we did is we, um, so we wanted to test that the theory that pharmacists, you know, um, have that model in their minds uh, as part of their clinical intuition. And so uh, we came up with a method actually, which comes from marketing. Um, and it's this method of paired comparisons. And the idea is that you put on the screen or you show somebody two things and they, they, and you ask them a question about them and basically they compare the two things. And then you keep having them do the same comparison with different things. So we chose a number of drugs um, that resulted in a little over 200 comparisons. And we asked pharmacists to join us um, remotely. Actually, we did this with a website and we showed them in random order, these drugs, and we asked them to, to just tell us which one, which drug they worried about the most when they saw each pair of drugs. So aspirin, warfarin, you know, we used, we used very commonly prescribed medications for this. And what we showed is that indeed, if you take the data from multiple pharmacists, I think we had, I don't remember the end, but it wasn't a real high number, you know, 11, 12, 13, something like that. Um, you can combine those data mathematically and statistically, and you can actually develop a risk model from that. And so we showed, in fact, that that would be possible, you know, using these methods. And uh, it's, it's sitting there. I think it would make a great app for pharmacists, you know, to spend some time. And we could collectively throughout the whole profession build a risk model using our clinical intuition. If we had a model like that, Dave, then... I would argue we should put it behind an API mm -hmm. and make it so that every prescription that gets placed gets also tagged with a risk score. And if we could start doing that, then we could pretty easily begin to sort out who has the riskiest profiles medication-wise, which patients, you know, are, are carrying the most risk based on our model, uh, you know, and so on and so on. So it's a way of rethinking, you know, and answering the question, what are we going to do to have a validated risk model if we can't base it on error data? Yeah, you're right. And I, I did a little bit of, I, I relied, when I was an administrator, I relied on my my error reporting system, but I also did EHR surveillance, but there's only limited amount of data points you can grab from the EHR. So you can find a patient who has was given D50, who was on insulin, you can find a patient who was given naloxone, who's on opioid, those type of things. But yeah. but that's just a quite a limited amount of drugs that you're able to capture unreported events 
passively. And you're right. I love this this other concept of of identifying risk when you don't have actual data points touching the patients, and you're you're instead relying on the cognitive and expertise of the pharmacist. Really cool. So. Um, yeah, I want to. If, if you don't mind, I'll just jump in and say. So, the, so can you guess what the main? What's the main criticism of that method? Now that people, you know, pharmacists have have read that paper and they responded a little bit to me about it. Can you imagine what their main criticism would be? My criticism would be the difference in the expertise of each of the people who are who are in the study. I guess at scale that should balance out, but. If we had a, you know, you know, and not every pharmacist is an A student, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is right. Exactly. I mean, you're on onto that. I, I knew you would be too. So so the thing is, the criticism was, well, hey, Alan, you know, isn't this uh, all subjective? You're just asking pharmacists for their opinion of which which drug worries them more. And yeah, one by one, it actually is, essentially. It is asking for the intuition. It's asking for that first thought that they have, even without, you know, deep, deep, because this went fast. You know, we wanted, hey, give us your first reaction. We didn't want, this wasn't like look it up in a book and then answer the question. But Dave, you know, so the thing was, yeah, that's subjective. Well, the, th the thing that the folks in marketing have learned is, yeah, of course, each individual's data right, may be, um, you know, imperfect. But what you're doing, and this is the crowd part of the crowd sort, is you're taking advantage of, you know, potentially large numbers of people. And as you just said, when you do that, then I think you can get to something that's actually quite valid um, and quite useful. Uh, but it requires, it requires a higher end approach. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, the folks, like I said, it's came from marketing. They wouldn't do these kinds of studies if they couldn't make good on them. They wouldn't spend the money and, and, and they do them. And so they're learning something and we can learn something too. Yeah. Anytime these days you use YouTube, you're going to get a, uh, you're going to get a, a survey, which one of these brands you have a positive opinion of Facebook, yeah. Google, Apple. I've gotten that one like 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe right. it's just exactly. me, but it's like the same approach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got it. But, but yeah, this is all really sort of within the realm of the learning health system, right? And that's what I love about it. Cause I, when I worked at partners healthcare before my previous role or now MGH Brigham, there was there was a lot of research put into the learning health system, but I would never really heard it from from the pharmacist lens. Mm -hmm. And this is you know my favorite part about both of these products or solutions, whatever you want to call them, is is that they're pharmacist centric and I'm a pharmacist. So uh, so these are you know tools that I can certainly see applying to my practice or other practices. So so we have like essentially some tools available to help reduce new parts or anything else you think that needs to happen or how do we, what do you think needs to actually happen to reduce new par? Is it more research? Is it scaling these tools we're studying them? What do you, what do you think? Yeah. So I think, um, so answer number one is yeah, uh, more research is needed here. And I, I, I'd love to be able to tell you that we've got pharmacy information researchers well-placed in our federal agencies on review panels to review grants and really, you know, are, are, are very interested in advancing pharmacy practice this way. Unfortunately, we're not there yet. So we need more folks uh, in, the, in this pharmacy uh, information research space, um, you know, the, the research side of pharmacy informatics, if you will, 
um, you know, asking these kind of questions, going after these kind of data, targeting the workflows that we have in pharmacy and moving the ball forward. So um, I, I'm always super excited, you know, to be working with PGY2 informatics residents. And when I do that, I'm encouraging them to include some manner of research in their professional work and professional lives, because I think it's so needed. Um, having said that, yeah, so research is one of the things. I think the, um, for me, since 2008, when I first wrote that commentary about uh, and raised the question of, you know, would there be ways of, of um, now that we're in the post-EHR environment, thinking differently about and, uh, and using technology differently for Newport or for perspective order review, um, one of the things I've uh, come to appreciate in the years since then is, is that we're going to need uh, a host of different analytic approaches um, to look at not just the prescriptions that are placed, but at the electronic health record data for whom they're placed mm -hmm. and analyze a, a wide variety of things if we want to have a system which can separate out those uh, electronic prescriptions, which really um, don't no longer require the pharmacist to look at them prospectively and those that still do. That are that are potentially problematic for whatever reasons. Um, you mentioned risk before. I think the um, the risk stratification is one of the most critical aspects of all because I really see the risk stratifier algorithms in a in a future system that could separate out our our electronic prescription record stream in this way. I really see the risk stratifier as the kind of the the control knob for the whole system. So I can imagine in a future, you know, you talked about your pharmacy management experience. I can imagine, you know, that um, if we had a, a very well-tuned control knob around risk, you might want to, um, during the daytime in a hospital when all of your staff are there, you might want to turn that up a little bit and actually adjust it for daytime use and let some higher risk things, you know, actually pass through unchecked because you know that your folks are the ones putting those in, checking them, talking to the clinical team about them and everything like that. Meanwhile, on midnights, you might wanna turn your risk threshold down and look at more prescriptions because there are fewer of them anyway in the middle of the night. Um, and, and, and you don't have as many folks and eyeballs checking them anyway. So we should always remember that with Newport, that is not the only opportunity in the pharmacy workflow to look at prescriptions. There's medication therapy management, profile review, medication reconciliation, which you also mentioned. Um, so that we, we ask pharmacists to look over medication therapies and a lot of different points in someone's care. This is only one of those points, uh, but it's obviously a very important one. And so I think the risk story is one, uh, but, but the other algorithms that I have in mind, I think we will, to do this well and to make it safe, we will need to be able to have predictive models that predict certain types of risks. Um, they'll probably be drug specific. Um, I'm happy to say there are one or two companies already out there that have put algorithms into the world that do a kind of uh, prescription and patient matching so they, they look at the new prescription and look at the patient's profile and they've done machine learning and they, they basically give it a score. The score answers the question essentially, would you expect this prescription to be placed for this person? Right? Mm -hmm. And if, if you would expect that prescription to be placed for that person, well, great. Then, then that, that maybe you know, it could go forward without 
um, you know, having to be uh, reviewed in every case. If you wouldn't expect it, you would obviously hold it back and have somebody take a look at it. It's unusual for those reasons. So the prescription itself may be very typical, but the patient for whom it's ordered <laughs> may be very unexpected. I'm glad you brought that up because that's the one thing that I, you know, one of the things I used to think about when I was, you know, say, rounding in the ICU, and is this is part of my thinking that you know, that will be revealed here is I used to always be thinking about how I could algorithmically verify this. And essentially that's what pharmacists do, right? When they verify our order, they're going through a checklist in their minds of, of different things that they want to pay attention to. And a lot of those things, as you've shown here with, with your various algorithms, can be automated. But where I always got stuck, and maybe we can have more of like, more detailed discussion about this. Where I got stuck was when I had a patient in the ICU who was crashing and who had, say, acute, acute hepatitis, acute cirrhosis. And there is no literature to support what were the, the medication plan for this patient. And, or NICU is another example where the, 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 the data itself isn't strong and you're acting more upon, say, local practice or expert opinion um, so that's where I had, and those orders for sure need to go to a pharmacist. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, also where your 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 risk knob could be turned differently for different subset of patients, and also where I think that that algorithm we just mentioned would fit in is matching the drug to the patient state. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think. Uh, uh, again, this is, I've, I've always envisioned the moves that we need to make here, you know, in the next phase of technology for pharmacy is separating out the one from the other. And when should a pharmacist continue to look at something? And so you've, you've basically outlined there a set of criteria, some patient-based, some location-based, some situation-based, some mm -hmm. you know, context or criteria of when, of course, you know, you would want the pharmacist um, very closely involved to the decision-making and helping that care team provide the best possible care under those, um, you know, extraordinarily difficult circumstances, challenging circumstances, and particularly, as you say, when there's when our evidence base is is slight to, to almost none. Um, yeah, that is that's that's the place where human expertise <laughs> belongs, and and yet I think we also need to acknowledge that because you know we can't produce enough experts to be in the ICUs to cover all of those cases, pharmacists, I mean, and we're using their time in, in these other ways. Right. Um, you know, this really is about making the best use of the pharmacists. And so we, since we know those criteria of when that human expertise is high value, then we want to make sure that we're, you know, providing that high value as much as we possibly can. So, um, so that's, a challenge for the profession, you know, to figure out how to use technology in that way. Uh, but that's that's really the goal here that, you know, I know there's there are concerns sometimes, and there were concerns right after that Newport paper came out about automating pharmacists, you know, out of their jobs and out of their roles. Um, and of course, anyone would want to be sensitive to that. That's a bad outcome. Um, but I really believe in the pharmacists and I, I really see these other roles that and other things that we could be doing um, to put more attention on. And so I'm very hopeful that this is a practice transformation story, ultimately. Agree. Yeah, I, I, I can see that criticism for sure. But my experience is 
is pharmacies pharmacies are just they're under resourced in general. Yeah. So it was never like a hard thing for me to find somebody something <laughs> there's never a hard thing for me to do to find somebody something to for somebody to do that's of value. So it's just more like transformation and repurposing of resources. Yeah, um, I think so. What other are there any other algorithms that are on your radar that the listeners should uh, should take some time and check out? Yeah, I think so. I think we can, um, you know, the things that I'm looking at, um, I think there are ways to uh, algorithmically screen medication profiles and surface opportunities um, that might help with adherence. Um, so one of the things pharmacists sometimes are asked to do is to look over a patient's profile and, and make suggestions of how things could be simplified. And I think that's a, a valuable service. Uh, and I would like to get to the point using the computer and I had done one paper and worked with some RX norm APIs and things to show, hey, you know what, we could surface some of those suggestions that a pharmacist might make, you know, automatically and potentially both speed that process up um, and also uh, extend it further, make it more available to people, more accessible. So I think that's one that's on my mind. Um, I've I had a chance to go to the uh, recently, I think a year and a half ago or so before the COVID times pandemic, I had a chance to go to the um, FDA one day to their precision dosing workshop. And it's pretty interesting what folks in pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics are doing these days. There, there are cases, certain drugs where pretty sophisticated dosing algorithms, quite a bit of computation can come into play and they're demonstrating that if you do your dosing that way for certain patients and indications, you know, you can get improved outcomes. There's a, there's a nice story from a learning health system story about this from the Improved Care Now Network around um, treating children with uh, inflammatory bowel disease with uh, infliximab. And they've shown that using their algorithm, which is not what you'll find in the FDA label for how to dose that drug, but if you were to adopt their method of doing the dosing, you can actually uh, keep kids um, probably um, out of the emergency room or out of the doctor's office, which is obviously a big win for families and kids. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I think we're going to have to accommodate, you know, more complex computerized dosing in the future. So I have my eye on that. Um, I think the, um, you know, I've seen algorithms that are being used in the controlled substance space. Of course, we've tried to come up with algorithmic ways of cooling us into diversion. People are familiar with that story, but not just diversion, just also um, best practices for opioid use, you know, in the aftermath of a terrible, you know, uh, opioid crisis. Uh, I hope we're in the aftermath of it and not still going through it. Um, you know, the, the thought that what pain specialists know, there aren't that many pain specialists in the world, you know, can, can we figure out a way to make it so that we apply what they know about dosing and drug selection, you know, um, with algorithmic and decision support help. That's another one that's on my mind. Um, so there are a bunch of them. And I think, um, you know, a host of these things will need to come together um, in a more powerful and effective way to handle the, the Newport use case. And my hypothesis is that the reason we're not seeing yet a lot of progress there is because it is a very complex story of multiple algorithms needing to be marshaled to solve the problem. I agree, I loved all of that. And you, you did mention about adherence and I wanna to touch on that quickly is that's another place where I, I've done a little work personally and, and that's where I've leveraged some marketing techniques of segmentation in terms of segmenting patients by zip code, by surveying them, by like you know, learning and clustering them more about 
to then establish what their odds of adhering are. And there's there's definitely some some opportunity there. So if you could, this is my last question, but if you could use your crystal ball, what do you think, what do you think pharmacy practice in the hospital will look like in 20 years from now? Let's do a little thought experiment. Yeah, so, um, so I, I, I'm, I'm anticipating, you know, if we fast forward to two decades, that what I refer to now um, in this very general way is prediction in practice. Um, I think we, will, we would see in most places, you know, some measure of prediction in practice. So what do I mean by that? So um, there have been some interesting projects um, to uh, create predictive models for adverse drug events. Um, I also think that we're probably in chronic um, use of medications for chronic disease, hypertension, uh, diabetes, type 2, uh, cholesterol, high cholesterol. I think that uh, we, we will be able to have enough data, real-world data, to create reliable predictive models and be able to basically say to someone who comes to the clinic for the first time, hey, we, we think for your health, it would be a good thing to start, you know, lowering your cholesterol a little bit. We want to um, prescribe this new drug and, and we predict based on our models, you know, that 12 months from now, if you take this drug every day, you know, your cholesterol will go from this number to that number, right? And, um, you know, we don't really see that today. I think in the minds of the clinicians and primary care <clears throat> and the pharmacists and ambulatory care and so on, they also probably have a sense of what they expect. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, but I think we'll get to the point where we can, we can use statistical models and basically show people what we expect to happen. If I'm right about that, Dave, um, even partially, <laughs> imagine how that changes the adherence discussion. Because if I show you as a patient, you're going to start a new chronic med for hypertension or diabetes to lower your hemoglobin A1C over time or your cholesterol, whatever other thing it, it is in the future. If I show you that I have a model in my office that shows me a graph of where I think you're going to be if you take this every day for 365 days or half a year or whatever, you're going to know that I have that graph, <laughs> right? And if you come back in six months and for whatever reason, you know, haven't been good about taking it, I'm going to look at your data and I'm going to look at the graph. <laughs> Hold you account. Say, Wait a minute. Our predictive model said you would be here and you've stayed about the same. So did you stop at the pharmacy on your way home? <laughs> you know, um, and so I think that could be a kind of a game changer um, showing people. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, prediction will come into practice in a lot of ways, but I really like that use case in chronic medication therapy where we have measurable outcomes like cholesterol, like hemoglobin A1C, like blood pressure. Um, I think that's a, a probably an earlier case that we could get to. Um, and it won't be easy to get there. It will take some time. But I think in, in the chronic therapies with medication space, that could be very helpful. And I liken it to what people have gotten used to with their phones and all these websites and things with weather prediction. You know, people are conditioned to certain types of predictions in their lives. And we need to figure out which health predictions are going to be the ones that are really game changing. And so I'm hopeful for that. That's one of the things I'm hopeful for. Um, I'll just mention on the Newport story, you know, to close the loop on that in this discussion, I do think we have a long way to go still uh, to get there. Um, I think we'll, we'll get there eventually and we'll have very sophisticated systems that are doing an enormous amount of processing of, of our medication information all the time. Um, but that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a lot of things coming together. So on that one, 
you know, I'm hopeful to put down some of my ideas and some new written works, um, mainly as uh, guideposts, you know, things to think about as that unfolds, however long it takes. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time today. And certainly, listeners, if you have further questions, uh, definitely reach out to me either by LinkedIn or Twitter. So exciting stuff. Thank you for for thank you for being on here. I really appreciate a fascinating discussion. And um, thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to FutureDose.Tech. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast on your favorite social media outlets. Be sure to stay connected to the Pharmacy Podcast Network and return for your next FutureDose.Tech episode coming soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.